นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามัสสังเออ very sorry to hear the news this evening that Master Daisuri has passed away. Those of you that have met him or have heard of him will know what a highly respected and significant person he he was in the community of the Thrussell Hall Abbey, which is part of the community in America, Shasta Abbey. He was the head of the order, and although I personally hadn't met him, I I have spent time talking with a number of his contemporaries and know that he was held in in the highest regard. And he wasn't old, and he was working very hard and fulfilling a very important function. So it'd be a great loss to the community. I'd only just read yesterday, actually, the the report saying that he had been responding to the chemotherapy and. One, of course, hoped that things were going to be otherwise, but this is how it's worked out. So our sympathies certainly go out to the community at Thrussell Hall, and I'll make a point of speaking with Reverend Master Daishin over there in the next few days. I'm sure, as committed meditators and contemplatives, the the community will, of course. Despite their feelings of of sadness and loss, also be paying attention to that which is the core of all Buddhist practice, which is actually realizing the Dhamma in each situation in our life. Not not being not being fooled by the way things appear to be. Of course, in the occasion of Losing somebody who one admires, loves, respects, holds dear. What's most obvious is the perception of loss. But from another level, on another level, from another perspective, if we've prepared ourselves, if we've investigated deeply into life. Then we will know that actually loss is normal. There's nothing wrong with loss. It can appear that way, and because it feels sad and painful, then loss can appear as if something's going wrong. But we, if we listen deeply and investigate, well, then we can see that this this idea that there's something wrong with loss or something wrong with sadness is something extra, something that we. We add to the situation, and so in our commitment to dharma and our commitment to practice, the realization, the insight that is so important is the, the the need to be able to let go and accord with life and death when that's what's happening, and not. Not allow ourselves to be defined by the outer appearance of things, by the forms. 
many times uh, you would have heard me speak about uh, the relationship of form and spirit. It's one of my favorite contemplations, probably because I, I myself still get fooled by the forms and, and lose perspective on the relevance of spirit. In the occasion of the Buddha's own passing away, when, when some of the monks were showing signs of, of uh, serious despair and and disappointment and dismay at the pending demise of their teacher, he pointed out to them that 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 was a mistake. That wasn't necessary to get caught up in despair. That his passing away was not actually a problem. There wasn't anything wrong. That's what happens to the form of the Buddha. The body of the Buddha dies like any other body. But the spirit of the Buddha, the Dhamma, is timeless, akaliko, is not limited. And so there were occasions when the Buddha pointed out, if you see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha. If you see the Buddha, you see the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the spirit. That's the point. That's the meaning. That's the essence of the Buddha. The essence of Buddhism so it's important that we that we we recognize this and and I think uh, regularly reflect on it because it is easy to you know, see that it's otherwise or to think that it's otherwise. A few days ago, I was speaking with somebody, a visitor to the monastery, somebody who was new to to Buddhism, and and uh, his partner was a, was a Buddhist of many years and. He was interested and and uh, wanted to know all about Buddhism, but in the past all he had seen was you know the outer forms of Buddhism. And Buddha images, usually these great big fat jolly ones sitting there, you know maybe with smoke coming out of their mouth or or, or used as a book stand or or something. And and he thought this was Buddhism, and and maybe I don't know, maybe he'd seen some tourist brochures of Thailand or Sri Lanka and and. Uh, Seen some of the uh, the outer expressions of Buddhism, and had actually been turned off by it, had been put off by this, and so I was explaining to him that it's inevitable that 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 there be these outer expressions or outer um, trimmings or trappings, if you like. There can be trappings of of Buddhism, but that's not the point. I was explaining to him that it's like when you go shopping at the supermarket and uh, you've got all these things to carry, you know, tumblers and packets and boxes and bags of this, that and the other and and if you're trying to carry it all, well, it becomes a real problem. So what do you do? You have a trolley and, you know, you, you push this trolley around and it's convenient. You know, you just put things in your trolley and you, know, you go, go through the checkout, then you wheel your trolley out to the car, and but you know nobody comes along and says, "What are you buying that trolley for?" Or you know, or I don't like the look of your trolley. You got a really crummy trolley, or you don't complain about the design of your trolley unless it doesn't work, you know, in which case you shouldn't even use it. You know, get a trolley that works. But we all know, of course, that 
that the trolley is not the point. It's what we put into the trolley. That's the point. And, and likewise with, with religion, the forms, the expressions, shaven heads and robes and conventions, bowing, Buddha images, incense, candles, chanting. These are outer expressions. These are forms of Buddhism, but they're not the point. That's not the spirit. And so it's wise to, in our relationship, in our involvement with Buddhism, to keep going back to this and, and checking to see we're not just holding on to the trolley, you know, thinking that's the point. And so, again, during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was a, uh, an occasion when a young monk was, the Buddha noticed this young monk uh, sitting, admiring him. Apparently he was very, very beautiful to look at, tall, apparently impeccable complexion, radiant and beautiful to, to gaze at. And there are a number of reports of, of the beauty, the physical beauty of the Buddha. And on one occasion, a young monk was, was sitting, just gazing at the beauty of the Buddha. And you know, the Buddha said, you know, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the wrong thing. This is, my form is not the point. Don't look at my form, but look, listen to what I say. Listen, look at what I say. Look at the truth to which I'm pointing. And yet on another occasion, there was um, um, a, a frightening story of, of, a, of a monk who, who had been possessed by lust uh, for a long time and and so he castrated himself and and when the story came back to the Buddha again the Buddha said basically the same thing you know you you cut off the wrong object the object should have been lust for desire or deluded desire that's what should have been cut off you know, just cutting off the form or attending to the form is missing the point altogether in the meditation instruction that I gave in the beginning I was offering some encouragement to take time in beginning practice to check to be aware that that we are in touch with our physical form and to use to become familiar with the meditation forms or meditation techniques this is actually the place where we start. These, these are not, so it's not that we dismiss forms. It's not that we, we have a disrespectful or a dismissive attitude towards Buddha images or, or chanting or, or conventions or traditions. These are actually important aspects of, of our practice, but it's a matter of keeping it in perspective. So, with our meditation practice to remember that throughout our meditation practice we pick up the forms and we use the forms but to not forget the point of the practice that, that we're into meditation because we're interested in, in increased contentment, increased well-being. With our meditation practice it's important to be familiar and confident with the forms and the techniques like learning how to 
work with the breath in different ways. Uh, Tanpunya and Tanabinando have given talks over the last few weeks about working with meditation techniques in different ways and it's important that we familiarize ourselves with them and, and become agile and comfortable with them. However, as we familiarize ourselves with meditation techniques or, or Buddhist theory in general, always let's always be careful that we don't just focus on the form itself. We can do this with our materialistic attitude to life we can think that just becoming a good meditator in terms of learning how to hold your mind on the meditation object for an extended period of time is the point. Well, of course, it's, it's, it's good if we can steady our minds and, and uh, focus our attention. That's valuable. That's, it's very important. However, that's not the point. If we're stressing ourselves in the meditation and focusing, focusing, concentrating, concentrating and our shoulders are coming up around our ears and, and we're getting stressed out in the meditation and cross-eyed and then we finish the meditation we kind of lose our balance as we stand up because we've, we've been trying so hard which does happen, I've experienced it myself well then we realise well, we've missed the point the spirit of the practice, the point of the practice is increased contentment and ease. And so it's important that we, as we apply effort to the meditation forms, as we familiarize ourselves with the formal teachings of Buddhism, that yes, we're enthusiastic and focused, but also there's a, there's a lightness and an ease and how we pick these things up. I remember reading teachings from one teacher, one meditation teacher who, this is way back in the 60s and early 70s, had gone to America and he said, well I recommend, when people come to me, I tend to recommend that my disciples meditate for 20 minutes once a week. And uh, I was a bit taken aback by that. and. But then I realized what he was doing was that the way we tend to relate to things is in our materialistic, grabbing, greedy way is we want to just get it and the sooner we can get it the better. And so he was countering that by, by just saying actually well do less, take less than you want, do less than you want and then let the spirit move you in meditation. I myself now do encourage people often to meditate less than they want. If they want to sit for, for an hour, you know, sit for 40 minutes. Uh, or if you, you know, feel that you've got to meditate every day, well, don't meditate one day. Take a day off and, and take a break one day. Countering that materialistic, grabbing, greedy uh, mind state that wants to get it for me now remembering the spirit of the practice the same principle applies very much to also that level of practice that we refer to as, as sila practice mm. the forms are there whether it's the, the five precepts the eight precepts the ten precepts the 227 precepts 
these forms are there and the explanations of the forms but the spirit of keeping precepts is not just keeping precepts not just keeping rules we might be able to do that but to feel for to contemplate the point what's the point of keeping precepts surely it's to do with with an inner quality like self-respect like dignity a self-confidence we've all experienced the the opposite which is that when we we we, we compromise these standards you know whether it's through through lying or stealing or you know, whatever we know the the taint that it leaves behind we know the feeling of regret remorse uh, lack of dignity loss of self-confidence well it's worth contemplating and becoming really conscious and really familiar with the opposite that that when we do stay within the boundaries of of what we understand to be what the Buddha called Manusa Dhamma the five precepts he referred to as Manusa Dhamma human standards these are the standards for human beings to live by when we do stay within these then what does it feel like the absence of remorse this is something the Buddha spoke about quite explicitly in in a conversation with the Venerable Ananda when the, when the when Venerable Ananda asked the Buddha what is the point of of keeping a life of you know, observing moral precepts the Buddha said lack of remorse absence of remorse and often living a, a decent sort of a life we, we can end up taking it for granted and uh, until we accidentally one day uh, slip up and compromise our precepts and then we feel remorse well the wise thing to do at that point is to really re- really dwell on that feeling. all right this this feeling of remorse this is painful and the point of keeping the precepts is to avoid this pain this pain is is not helpful to I'm sure we all know what it's like to really have regret I wish I hadn't said that I wish I hadn't done that and that real wishing that hadn't happened so when that does happen to really contemplate that and say well this is the result of that cause and and in so doing becoming more conscious more clear in our own experience of the spirit of sila practice and that will help us keep the forms in perspective until we do that then we tend to relate to the forms of sila practice in a, a very materialistic way and and uh we think that you know keeping the precepts is is determined by what other people see us do. You know, for instance, if if somebody accuses you of of, uh, of stealing something from the office, you know, or if you come to the monastery, somebody came to the monastery recently and and uh, accidentally went off with a blanket in their car, and then. Um, got in touch and in a terrible state of remorse because they thought they'd stolen a, a monastery blanket and broken the precepts and got into a pretty unhappy state over it and 
And in reality, in terms of reality, there's absolutely no need for remorse whatsoever. You know, mild uh, regret at a moment of heedlessness, and we hope not too many people kind of accidentally <laughs> go off with our blankets, but that's not a moral consideration. Uh, that's a, just a lack of momentary lack of mindfulness. And however, if somebody accuses us of stealing, and our focus is still very much on the forms of practice, and then we can be shaken. If we know ourselves that actually we didn't steal anything, it was an accident, well, in terms of reality, there's no problem. But it takes a while with our habits of mind to cling to forms, to clinging to the way things appear to be, to come back to actually feeling the spirit and letting the spirit of sila practice direct us, guide us forward. And again, the same principle, I would say, uh, is very evident and, and, and holds true with regards to the level of practice we, we talk about as dana, generosity. There's been, there's been considerable confusion arise over uh, dana. It's, uh, and the confusion doesn't arise over the spirit of generosity, of giving, but it arises because of overemphasis on the forms, uh, the holding to to it. Whether it's because of whether it's somebody feeling unhappy because their offering is rejected, this can happen. I don't know if you, or in, in, in the experience of of giving gifts to somebody, you, you can give a gift to somebody. Uh, and what you're doing is really the spirit of giving a gift is actually wishing to make contact. One of the best ways of establishing a relationship or mending a broken relationship is to actually give a gift to somebody. And the giving of the gift, the meaning, the point, the spirit of giving the gift is to enable an opening. When we give, the heart opens just a little bit and we, we give a little bit of ourselves. And, and it can be the case that you're trying to actually communicate this to somebody and and they just look at what you're offering and all they see is the thing they say, oh, I don't need that and doesn't feel very good. And that's a very materialistic attitude towards towards giving. Or with regards to the formal offerings that we do uh, in offering the puja. You know, sometimes um, I've, I've been criticized here because we only we only offer one stick of incense and traditionally in Thailand, uh, you offer one stick of incense, I think, maybe for a funeral. And for normal circumstances, anyway, you offer three sticks of incense, one for the Buddha, one for the Dhamma, one for the Sangha. Well, that might be okay when you're in these huge, great big temples, or if you're in a, a grass-roof sala, a meeting hall, which doesn't have any walls on it, and the smoke goes, gets blown away. But when you're in an enclosed area like this with a lot of people to have a lot of smoke around can be seriously unpleasant besides which it spoils the paintwork so I, when anybody says that I should be burning three sticks of incense well I say well do you want to wash the walls and repaint them regularly for us and that tends to deal with the problem yeah. uh, but the actually the objection and the objection has been voiced very seriously sometimes you can't do that you can't offer one stick of incense 
And it's not because they're criticizing my spirit of devotion to the Lord Buddha and my wish to express my gratitude for this teaching. That's not what they're objecting to. They're objecting most vociferously to the form. And I've seen, um, I'm remembering one case in particular, this uh, young man who was over here studying and got seriously upset and uh, wouldn't take any consoling because he was quite convinced that you had to give offer three sticks of incense. And so, whatever the level of practice that we're, we're engaged in or whatever aspect of our life we're engaged in, really, I, I would say that it's always worth remembering and going back to over and over again, checking to see that we're, we're appreciating the function of form. We're not dismissing form but we're seeing there's a spirit behind the form. That's the point, that's the validity of the form. When a form ceases to have any spirit anymore, well that means it's pointless. I think probably all of you, most of you have heard me tell the story of, of putting out the cat in the temple in India, that teaching story of the ashram in, in India where where the Swami had a a cat in the, in the ashram and during the pujas each evening when the local people would come and join in the devotions they'd have started becoming a problem because the cat would come in and, and knock over the oil lamps and, and, and disturb the pujas and so they developed this practice of before pujas the first thing the Swami would do would be to take the cat and put it outside and lock the door and this became a, basically a ritual that they would do every evening before puja put the cat out and Lock the door. And this went on for quite a few years until uh, Swami, eventually Swami was very old and Swami died. But the lay devotees kept coming to the ashram and doing evening puja and, and they likewise would begin by putting the cat out and locking the door and then get on with puja. Well then, as happens to all things, the cat died as well. And the first thing they did was actually go out and buy another cat because they couldn't do puja without putting the cat out and locking the door. Well, it's obvious. Actually, that, that aspect, that formal aspect of the puja, you know, there wasn't, you know, that wasn't actually at one with the spirit of puja. It was something that could have well been done away with. When the cat died, that's okay. We don't have to get another cat. Well, sometimes there are religious spiritual forms and social conventions which are like that as well. The spirit doesn't actually flow anymore through that form and the form can be allowed to go its own way. So we don't dismiss forms, we appreciate forms, but we remember that behind the forms there's a spirit. And the forms, if we hold them lightly, if we relate to them with respect, then it enables the flowing of spirit. And there comes an agility with that, an agility of spirit, an agility of being, a flexibility of understanding, a flexibility of contemplation. If we hold too tightly to forms, they bring about a rigidity. You may have seen this in your own practice or witnessed it in others, people who hold too tightly to their meditation forms. This technique is right. This is the one way. No other technique will work. You've got to do it this way. My teacher said this or whatever. Forgetting the spirit of the meditation techniques is to free the heart. Or... 
relating too much to, too tightly to the precepts or the various aspects of spiritual life. If we hold to the forms too tightly, they bring about a rigidity of spirit and they, they don't actually bring about a gladness and an ease and, and an increased well-being. Conversely, as we allow the forms to serve the spirit of Dhamma, then there's an increased ability to accord with the changing nature of life, whether it's agreeable or disagreeable. And and we don't tend to be so fooled by the way things appear to be. Even situations that appear totally paradoxical, when we're in touch with the spirit of practice, we can live with paradox. We can live with dilemma. When we're attached to the forms and we, our, our attention is, is very rigid as a result of our attachments, then, then we, we find paradox and dilemma very frustrating and very irritating and we can even get upset about it and demand a solution to something that's actually not going to resolve very easily. With the flexibility and the fluidity of awareness, of being, we can hold dilemma, we can hold paradox. Things can feel in totally opposite ways at the same time. A very mundane physical example, our, our good friend Sue, who happens to not be here tonight. Many of you will have talked with Sue and, and know that you know, Sue is 101 years old, but you'll know that her mind is far from being old. Her mind is bright and lucid and alive and flexible. But her body is very old, and she's, she sometimes becomes troubled by that, like we can all get fooled by form. But there's a part within her that's been practicing for many years that knows that this is not the point, this is not a problem. When she rang me the other day, she was saying, oh, the skin on my legs is worn out. There's nothing to hold the blood in anymore, and it's going all over the place. And somebody said I might bleed to death if I'm not careful, so I'd better not come out on Sunday night. And she was quite peaceful about it. She wasn't, you know, she said, oh, well, the body, you know, you know what the skin's like on my legs and and on the bodily level, she feels totally old and worn out. But on the heart level, on the spirit level, she's very much alive. Sometimes and we can also, emotionally, we can have conflicting emotions at the same time. You can have a friendship whereby you actually really love and admire somebody tremendously. And yet on another level, be really angry at them. Maybe something they say or do triggers some of your old early life conditioning and an old neurotic pattern flares up, something you hadn't seen for a while and the next thing you're behaving like some sort of adolescent, bad-mouthing your best friend. Now the way that appears to be is, oh, end of relationship, that's it, I'm never going to talk to you ever again. Yeah. Whereas actually on another level, at the same time, that admiration, that love and respect can still be there. Now if we don't have a agility of awareness and agility of being, we can just grab at one apparent reality. And that's really unfortunate. We can ruin a good relationship. 
in our inner life, in our meditation life, in our spiritual practice, there can be a very deep and profound love of truth and faith in Dhamma and true principles. It can be well established. And yet, at a certain stage in practice, we encounter some mind state that just undoes us. And for a period of time, all we're aware of is doubt. I just don't know anymore. Is there any point to this? Was there any ever any point to this? It can feel like that. If we're still governed and determined by an overly materialistic and rigid attitude towards practice, then our grasping at security is going to tend to obstruct the flow of the spirit of practice. And we'll just grab at that apparent reality, and we can do that, and and then decide, oh, I have no faith anymore. It's all over. There is another possibility, and that is if we have an agility of spirit, then we can hold the paradox. We can actually allow the validity of both possibilities. Yes, we can still have faith, and we can have doubt at just the same time. They can exist not in the same place, not in the same dimension, not on the same level of our being, but on one of the myriad levels, myriad dimensions of our hearts, of our consciousness. So I mentioned these examples of, of, of some of the benefit and disadvantages of, of, of uh, having prepared ourselves with an agility of spirit because it is, I feel, directly related to how we hold the forms of spiritual life. Whether it's the formal practices that we do here in the monastery, uh, offering dana, observing sila, practicing meditation, studying the teachings, or whether it's relational aspects of our everyday life, whether it's the experience of of, of loss of, of a loved one, somebody that we hold dear and admire. And this contemplation on that which belongs to form and that which belongs to spirit can be a source of great insight and support in our practice. And thank you very much for your attention.